Go ahead and open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, so we are beginning our Advent series, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through the first seven verses of Isaiah 9, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And uh, so we're going to be walking through these verses over the next four weeks. Uh, we're going to hit verses 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, but as we're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of a context of what's happening. So as you know, uh, in the U.S., most of us uh, see a lot of political um, fighting, I guess you would say. Like, there's, we're pretty a divided country. Um, and so some would say, I've never, we've never been this divided before. That's actually not true. There was a civil war at one point. We have been more divided than we are now. But I'm saying that because as we're looking in the context of Isaiah, I want you to see another country that was incredibly politically divided. And that's something that's happening culturally leading into chapter 9 of Isaiah. So let me give you some context here. So there was a king named David, and he was the central figure in Israelite history. He is their premier king. He had a son named Solomon who was put, in, put under him, put at his successor, I guess is the best way. He was his successor. Solomon was a great king for a while, and then he married a lot of women, and it just started to go downhill after that. And uh, so they, he started wearing foreign wives, and they led him to uh, start worshiping their foreign gods. And what God said is that because you've been doing that, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. But I'm not going to take it from you because I love your dad, David. I'm going to take it from your son. And so that's what happens. So Solomon dies. Rehoboam, his son, becomes the king. However, the entire nation says, no, we're revolting against that guy. Jeroboam was another political figure, not related to Rehoboam. Just, they're not brothers. It's just a similar name. So Jeroboam was a political figure, and the northern ten kingdoms of Israel said, no, we're following that dude. And so they rebelled against Rehoboam and followed Jeroboam and said, we are the nation of Israel. We are following him. But God kept two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, under the authority of Rehoboam for the sake of David to keep David's descendant over Jerusalem as the king of Jerusalem. And so they, they stayed him. So, so from that point on, this is what happened in the, in the history of Israel, is the nation split in two, and that's just the way it remained forever. And so this is, that was a very politically trying time for these people, remember? So, so, so it's, it's a rough time. Now, as the kings led this nation, they followed in the footsteps of their fathers in not being faithful to God. They completely rebelled against God, continued to worship foreign gods. In fact, Jeroboam, the guy who, who took the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and became their king, he ended up setting up golden calves. He set up some temples, set up golden calves, and said, these are your gods, Israel. Come worship these guys. Did you know that there were other golden calves other than the ones in Exodus? I, it's just interesting looking at that in, in 2 Kings, which... We're going to get to look at a lot of this stuff in detail coming up in the spring because we're going to begin a 
whoever, who knows how long series on First and Second Kings. It's going to be great. Uh, but for now, that's where we're at. And so Jeroboam was given a promise by God. When God put him in charge of the northern kingdom, he came to him and he said this, Jeroboam, if you will be faithful to me, if you will walk obediently to me, and you will follow me and lead my nation to love me and serve me and to get rid of all foreign gods, then I will make your house, I will make your kingdom like David's, one that will be mine, my man, forever, if you will lead your nation to love me. But Jeroboam didn't do that. In fact, what it says in 1 Kings is this, is he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he walked in the ways of his father and the sin that he caused Israel to commit. That's what he did, and that's what his son did. That's what his son did. And so there was a repeated succession of kings living like their fathers and rejecting God and leading their people to be unfaithful to God. And so, because that was the nature of the king, that became the nature of the people of the nation. If you, you're going to follow what your leaders are like. And so what God said is, all right, if that's going to be the case, I'm bringing in the big guns, the Assyrians, who were the national power of that time, the world power, the Assyrians, they're going to come in, they're going to raid your cities, they're going to burn them to the ground, they're going to take your people back to be slaves. Fun times for these people, right? And so this is what he says. Go back, turn back to chapter 8 and look at verse 21. God is giving a, this, this proclamation to his people. And he said this, they will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And they will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness." What God said is, I am bringing judgment upon you and upon your nation because you have rejected me as your king and you've followed your wicked king. And so that's what's happening here. Now, if you are receiving this message from Isaiah, that's not a happy day at church, right? If you're going and you're like, this is the message of the day. God's going to come, bring the Assyrians, raid your cities. You're going to look all around Fort Worth, all around Alito, all around Willow Park, and it's just going to be gloom and destruction. Everything's going to be burned, and you're just going to be sitting there in darkness. <laughs> all right, go serve them this week, guys. Like, like, that's a hard day. That's a hard day at church. So what God does is he looks at his people, and he gives them a message of hope, and that's what we're going to get for the rest of this series. We're going to look at his message of hope to his people, but, but I want you to see something here, because what does he say in verse 22? They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven, what, into thick darkness. So Isaiah is giving a picture of what's going to happen at their destruction all around. It's a physical picture of what's happening inside of them. 
And so there is this spiritual condition in God's people, and it's depicted by their physical, what's going to happen to their city here in just a little bit. And what is depicted here? Darkness. That's what's in here. That's what he's trying to get them to look at is darkness. That is their spiritual condition, and their their physical location is going to match it here in just a little bit because of the Assyrians are coming in. And so light versus darkness is a theme very common in Scripture. Light versus darkness. So darkness is a metaphor that signifies or describes spiritual ignorance and spiritual confusion. It describes spiritual ignorance and spiritual confusion, all of which or both of which characterize life lived separated from Christ or life lived apart from Christ. And the Bible tells us that all of mankind, not just Israel, are in this same state of darkness. By nature, you and I live in a state of darkness or is being separated from Christ and being spiritually confused and spiritually ignorant. That's just our nature. Now, when I was uh, 16, 15, 16, my dad got a brand new work computer. Uh, from, it was at IBM. This is back in 20, 2006, just 5, 2006, somewhere in there. And he got a brand new computer uh, from his work. And he, he, it was, he had this thing for six hours. I'm not kidding, six hours. And he spent that day, this is back before cloud, like you couldn't connect to a cloud and get all your stuff, whatever. Like you had to go to the office and, and like upload all of your work files to this new computer, this IBM computer. And he, he, he spent the whole day doing it, six hours doing it. He got home and he set his laptop bag uh, just down under where, we, where you would set stuff, underneath the, we had a bar uh, thingy uh, in our kitchen. And then he, he stopped and got a uh, drink at Chicken Express, a large one. And he just set, that, set a drink down, set his laptop back down, went into his room. I was getting something off the counter and knocked the entire full drink directly into his laptop bag. Oh, no, no, my, dad, my dad's very kind. But so he, but he, uh, so I, I look at this bag and I'm like, oh no, literally this laptop is swimming in Diet Coke. And so, and so I take out the, the laptop and I, I, I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So I take it, it was turned off. So I go and plug it in and turn it on to make sure it's still working. If you're unfamiliar with electronics, what's happened is if you, if you get water introduced into a circuit that has electricity running through it, you fry the whole thing. If it was off, we could have let it dry out, and maybe it would have survived. But no, not this way. I ensured it was dead. And uh, now my dad walks in the room, and he's like, what happened? And I go, I, I don't know. I have no idea what to say at this point. Like, I thought I was fixing things. And then he's like, why is it plugged in? And I go, I don't know. I don't know who did that. I don't know what's going on. Like, <laughs> and again, I got, I'm like 16. Like, I'm not just like three. Like, like, I'm, like, you know, like when you're three, you say things, and you're like, no, that totally is believable. Like, no, like I understand what I'm saying is not believable right now. I just don't know what to do. Now, that is my natural state, right? You, like, you and I naturally live in darkness, in spiritual ignorance, to where we walk according to our own light, according to our own experience, according to our own knowledge. And what that gets us a lot of times is fried computers, right? 
And the issue for a lot of mankind, the issue for most of us, is that we're actually blind to our blindness. We're blind to our ignorance, our spiritual ignorance. We're blind to our spiritual confusion. In fact, the idea of even saying that we are spiritually ignorant apart from Christ is offensive. Like if you have lunch with someone, uh, if, if, you, if you're talking with someone who's an agnostic or someone who's spiritually curious but not a Christian, it's offensive to suggest that they are incomplete apart from Christ. Because our blindness, and because of our blindness, when we perceive a problem, what's our most common solution? Turn to our experience, turn to our knowledge, turn to what feels appropriate at that time, right? And so we're blind to our blindness. And so perceiving our need to Christ is something we're incapable of on our own. And so as such, we believe most commonly that we are the light or that we have the light within us to fix our problem or fix our world. We think that it's inside of us. That's why there's so many meditation apps you can get on the app store because you think, I'm spiritually curious. I feel like I've got issues. What I need is just deep breathing. That'll help me fix it. And we think we have the light inside of us to be able to fix our issues or fix our world or fix our ignorance. We, we believe that. And so we believe our thoughts, our intellects, our feelings, our cultural ideas should be the guiding principles by which we live and our world lives. That's what we think. That's why if you see people on Facebook who who were formerly Christians, and then now they've become super intellectual, and so now they've, they've moved away from Christianity uh, because Christianity doesn't fulfill their, their questions or whatever, and they've moved on to becoming, well, now I'm just I'm something other than Christian. There was a former staff member here who, who did that. And, and I just, his God is his intellect. And and you see this. It's like he has become his own authority. What sounds good to him is what is correct. What does not jive with what he believes or what he thinks is incorrect. Therefore, Christianity is not true. It's because his intellect is his light. He believes, like we believe that we are the light. It's commonly described today as living my truth. And so some of us, if you're into pop culture, if you're into things like Bachelorette, I don't know, if you are or not, I don't know. But if you're into that, like, like a, a common refrain is, listen, you, do, you, you live your truth, I'm going to live my truth. And it's just a, it's a, it's a dumb saying because it, it just doesn't make any sense. But, but like, the point is, I am my own highest authority. Where you see this really commonly in pop culture and it's just normal life is with sexual ethics. So, for example... I'm going like, like, to choose to not be abstinent because I'm living my truth. I'm living what I want to live out. And so, therefore, no one's going to tell me or have this oppressive hand over me to tell me what I should do with my life in that area. So, therefore, I'm going to live how I want, and I'm just going to, that's, that's, that's the way it is. I'm living my truth. Another thing is with gender identity, gender confusion, I'm going to live my truth. There's nothing outside of me that can tell me who I should be or what I should be. That's oppressive. And so, therefore, I'm going to lay that aside. I'm going to cast their bonds apart from me. Psalm 2, we saw that a couple weeks ago. I'm going to live my truth. There's nothing outside of me that should tell me how I should live. And the, what that describes for us 
is our spiritual ignorance, our spiritual confusion. We believe we're the light, but the reality is that we are in darkness and we're confused and we don't even, we're blind to the fact that we're blind. And that is where the people in Isaiah's time are. That's where they're at. And God is looking at them and says, I'm going to make your physical location look like your spiritual, your spiritual, uh, where you're at spiritually. But God looked at his people and he looked at us and he said, I don't want you to remain that way. Because he loves us and because he loves you, because he loves this world. He says, I don't want you to remain there. I don't want you to continue to be blind to your blindness. I want something to happen. And so look at verse or chapter 9 here in Isaiah. Because God comes and he gives a promise of hope, a prophecy about a coming day in which he is going to come and deliver the thing that we most need. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way by the sea that was the main highway leading from Damascus down and to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. He's going to bring honor. And look what he says here in verse 2, because this is important for us this morning. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And this is the Christmas of promise. This is the promise of Christmas. And that, that he looks at these people living in the land of darkness, these people living in spiritual darkness and spiritual ignorance and spiritual confusion and trying to live out their truth, being blind to the fact that they're blind. He says, you, I am coming. I am bringing something. I am bringing what you most desperately need, and that is a great light. And that is what he's saying. That is his prophecy, his promise of what he was going to do some Christmas a thousand years later. That's what he was saying. And so upon those walking and living in darkness, a light has dawned. And so what does light do? So if you're in darkness, if you uh, don't love my daughter, um, is four. She does not totally love the dark. And so what do you do? You got a little nightlight. You put it in her room at night to her when, when, you, when you close the door and you leave her room after putting her down, going through the bedtime routine, reading stories, what do you do? You close the door and you've got her little nightlight on. So that way she can see a little bit in her room and not have to be scared about what's lurking behind her closet door or anything like that. What does light do? It, it allows you to see correctly because when you're in darkness, what does your mind do? starts making up all these things that are in that room, right? If you're a four-year-old, four-year-old, you're looking around, you're seeing a shadow from a, from a Barbie, or you're seeing, you know, you're seeing this Barbie laying on the ground, and you know like it's your Barbie, but in, if it's in dark, your mind can start playing a lot of weird tricks on you on what, what's really there. But when you have that nightlight, what happens? You're able to see your world correctly. You're able to see your world correctly. And so a light enables you to understand who you are, 
what your condition is, what our need is, who God is. It allows you to see your world rightly, right? It allows you to see your world rightly. So when I ride bikes, sometimes uh, I'll, I'll get on my bike and I'll ride to go meet some guys at La Pasadita in uh, White Settlement. Uh, a couple days a week, and, and, and many days I would ride my bike over there from my, uh, my house just right here by the church. And since the time change, it's less of a deal uh, because it's lighter in the morning, but, um, but when it's still kind of dark, but prior to the time change, man, it's super dark when you're riding in, in the morning about 6 a.m. or so, and, and uh, it is, yeah, it's really dark, and I've got a, like a tiny little mag light on the front of my bike, uh, just because it's not as necessary, because most of the time I ride, it's during the day. But there are a couple of times I was riding, and like, I really could not see the road in front of me very well, and, uh, and so like, I'm like holding on with two hands, because I had a, you know, a bike wreck a couple months ago, and it was, I've learned my lesson. I don't want to do it. I don't have another one. And so I'm holding on real tight. And there were a couple times, man, if you're riding on the access road to, uh, against 820 just on the shoulder, that's not always the cleanest place. And, uh, and there's a lot, not a lot of road work done on that. And so I was riding, and it's really dark. And, and man, I hit, a, I hit a bump in the road. It's, it's scary. It's scary, if you, especially if you don't know it's coming. And it's just like, oh, that was, came out of nowhere because you, my little light wasn't able to see it very well. And so I learned, like, at that point, I'm kind of done doing this in the dark because I don't want to crack my helmet again. I'm done with this. I need a bigger light like a sun that will ena- enable me to see my world correctly, to see when my bike is going to run into a thing and I'm about to crash and, and you know, get another concussion. I don't want that anymore. And so this allows me to see my world correctly. But you know what's interesting about light? Is that it's something that's an authority figure for us, right? It's something that, that is, it's all about authority. Because when light comes in, that tells you what's happening in your world. That tells, like, so what's happening here? In Isaiah, he says, you people are walking in darkness. You're living according to your truth. You're living according to your, your knowledge, your ignorance, really. But all of a sudden, this great light is dawning. And by this light, you're going to be able to see your world correctly, see your condition correctly, see who God is correctly. And so what he's talking about here is some measure of authority coming by which you should live your life, by which you should see your world. This should be the lens through which you see your world, your lens through which you think about God, your lens through which you see yourself or perceive yourself. And so there's something in this that this light is coming that there's a call for us to submit ourselves to. Because if this is the ultimate truth that's coming from God to help us see our world correctly, then there's something in it for us to say, then this is the thing by which I should live my life. This is the thing by which I should submit myself to. This is the baseline that I should hold to for my life. And so this promise shows us something, that it is of great love from great love from God. 
this displays God's great love for us because we are people walking against him in rebellion to him according to our own ways. But he says, I don't want you to be that way anymore. I want to provide you a baseline. I want to provide you something to perceive your world through and to hold fast to in order to live your life. He says, I want to provide that for you. And that displays God's great love for us because he provided the thing that we most needed, and that was light. And in this promise of Isaiah 9, as we're going to see this unfolding over the next several weeks, we're going to begin to get a picture about what this promise is really about, or more precisely, who it's about. We're going to see this over the coming weeks. But I want you to see one thing here. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, because John picks up this promise and tells us a little bit more about it. John chapter 1, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. Go to the table of contents if you need help getting there. There's no shame in doing that. Here's what John says in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Catch this verse, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And look down at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is John's Christmas story for the Greeks. And he picks up this theme of people living in the land of darkness, but this great light from God has dawned and has come for us. And that is his introduction to Jesus. That's his introduction to Jesus. There's one more I want you to see. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is the last time we'll turn. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the very first time he has come into the public as a rabbi after his temptation in the wilderness He's being revealed to the world, and I want you to see what the first prophecy wrote about here is. Look at verse 13. He left Nazareth, his hometown, and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. We heard about those, right, back in Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Catch this. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so Matthew is picking up again this same theme from Isaiah, this prophecy from Isaiah. And what he's saying is, is that light has come. 
that light has come, the one who, who has come by which we should live our lives and submit ourselves to and through whom be able to see our world correctly, see God correctly, see us correctly and our condition correctly. That one is Jesus and he's come for us. And that is what he's saying here. And look what he does in verse 17. What did he say he was going to do? He was coming as the light, bringing light for us. And look at the first thing Jesus says is this. From then on, Jesus began to preach. What he's doing is bringing light, the baseline by which we should live our lives, the wisdom from God to see our world correctly. And this is what he says. Repent. That means turn away from your sin and run after God because the kingdom of heaven has come near. A great light has dawned that has come from God, and that is what Christmas is about. That is what we celebrate, this promise of Christmas in which we get to look back and celebrate the great light that has come for us because we couldn't provide it for ourselves.